Hey, y'all. I just want to start by saying Happy New Year. I am super excited to bring you this interview with Sarah Bennett. Sarah spent 18 years as a public defender before turning her passion for helping people into art. Sarah now photographs women in and after prison, hoping to shed light on the extremely long and life sentences they face. We start our conversation off with her work as a public defender and some specific cases she has worked on. One of these cases completely shook her and triggered the switch to photo activism. In our conversation, we talk about parole, how women doing time differs from men, re-entry for women, we bring up Nikki Zinger's case, and we talk about the humanity of the people that we lock up. Sarah's art has been widely exhibited and featured in publications like the New York Times, the New Yorker Photo Booth, and Variety and Rolling Stone's American Injustice. Right now, Sarah has some of her art up in New York City's MoMA PS1 in the Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration exhibit, along with folks who have made art from inside prison. And I have to say, I went to this exhibit with the fabulous Rebecca Sebastian from Dialogue Podcast, and mine and Rebecca's minds were completely blown. So I am super excited to talk to you. Um, I just saw your work at MoMA. Um, I was there for the art in the time of mass incarceration. And I had already known of you, but it was my first time seeing it in person. And that's when oh, I was great. like, you know, no, I need to interview her. So. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, you know, your work and everything you do, you know, from being a public defender to now your art really just aligns with everything the podcast's mission is. So we are really excited to have you, Sarah. It's funny because as I was part of that show at MoMA PS1, even... I should say even, but I felt like my own thinking um, just changed a little bit because my, part of my bio was always that I represented women who were, you know, who had suffered from a lot of domestic violence and wrongful convictions. That was sort of my focus, which was true. But when um, they were putting together my bio for MoMA PS1, I, I realized that it felt like I was distancing myself from people who are actually guilty in prison and who I also think don't belong there. Okay, so before we jump right in, can you just introduce yourself for listeners? Uh, sure. My name is Sarah Bennett. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I've spent the last probably eight years focusing on photographing women with life sentences in New York State. And before that, I was a I call myself a public defender. I was actually a criminal appeals attorney. I was a public defender, but I think people think that means that I was in court all the time. And in reality, my clients had already been convicted. And then I was their appellate attorney. Didn't mean I didn't go back to court because I often did. And we'll get to that when we talk about the clemency for um, Judith one of Clark. the, um, yeah, for Judith Clark, one of the women that you have, have documented. And, and also, did you work for the Legal Aid Society? I did for 18 years. So, so can you tell us, you know, our listeners hear a lot about appeals and, and, you know, before I started this work, I'm still kind of, you know, it's a lot to learn. Um, what does an appellate attorney do? So after somebody has been convicted at trial, everybody has an automatic right to an appeal. And if you can't afford it, then you're assigned an appellate attorney. And the appellate attorney's job is to go back through what is the record. So that means only anything that was presented at trial. 
And that's what you look at on appeal. So I used to say it was kind of an intellectual exercise because you're reading the record and you're trying to make sense of what happened at trial and find basically technical errors, basically something that went wrong at trial. That's an automatic appeal. Everybody has one in every state. So you're convicted at trial, you go to appeal. And then after that, all of the other appeals are not automatic. You have to apply for them. So you have to apply to your state's highest court. And then if you're denied in your state's highest court, then you try to work your way up through the federal system. And none of those are guaranteed. And most people's cases end at the appellate level in their state. Does that yeah. And so the federal you? ones, is that what we're talking about? Habeas petitions? Yeah, exactly. And that has to be, um, it has to be some constitutional error. And so I would say like 90 something percent of cases end at the appellate division, you apply to the highest court of your state and almost always they deny it without a hearing. And then that's the end of it. But then there's another, there's another route also, which is what I was, I love to do because I found straight appeals um, kind of frustrating. And that's when you try to take the case back into the trial court. And that's what you'll see. That's in, in New York State, it's called a 440. I'm not sure what it's called elsewhere. And that's when you're trying to maybe do an ineffective assistance, assistance of counsel. You have to find things that couldn't have been discovered at the time of trial. And you try to go back into trial court again and get like a second bite up at the case, basically. It's so interesting because on Friday, so we're talking on a Monday now, on Friday, a couple of days ago, I talked with two friends who are prosecutors. So we were talking about very similar things just from a different side. So it's really nice to hear from you who, you know, they would be going in court up against appealing the appeals. So Right. And they're coming from a, a, a place of strength because they mm -hmm. already won the case. Right. And so it's the the burden is very heavily on the defendant. You know, they just have to defend whatever happened. You have to you have to be much more creative about it is the way I would say it. So we're absolutely going to get to your innocent clients that you have worked for. But I want to know if there were any times you were defending somebody and you were like, man, this person just shouldn't be getting out. Um, you know, it's not the criminal defense attorney's job to decide whether somebody should get in or out or not. It's more whether or not whatever happened, happened in a, in a sort of a legal fashion. Mm -hmm. So you try not to make judgments. I have to say I wasn't the best at it. And sometimes I think I wasn't, I mean, I think I was a really good attorney, but I, sometimes I felt a lot. I just really felt a lot. And so sometimes it was a little hard, hard, for it to be just the intellectual exercise that it was. Yeah, I guess tell me a little more about that. I mean, that's what I'm wondering. You know, you know, now seeing your work as an artist, you can tell that you you do feel a lot. Um, mm -hmm. You really you get very intimate with these people that you have photographed, and I can't imagine that just popped up one day. So, I mean, during your work, I mean, tell me a little more about feeling for the, the people that you were working with. I mean, it obviously wasn't for everybody because I had a caseload, just like. I mean, when you're an appeals attorney, you have a much smaller caseload. A trial attorney might handle, have 100 cases going at a time. Yeah. We did something more like 12 to 15 cases a year. So you had a chance to actually delve into them. But my clients were also all over the state of New York, and we weren't encouraged to go see them. And I don't know if that's changed since I left, because it's been 15 years since I've done that kind of work. But um, 
because I was in New York City and the women's prison is not that far, it's like an hour and a half away, I used to try to go and at least see my women clients. And sometimes, you know, when you, we would take phone calls from them, but when you see somebody in person, a lot of times they'll just reveal a little bit more. And that's sort of where you can find, you know, maybe something to help them. Or sometimes something just happens in passing. You know, it's hard to describe, but one of the women I photographed um, has a life without parole sentence. And I communicate with most of the women that I photographed. I didn't expect to, but here it is a couple of years later, and I'm still hearing from them, and we have a pretty robust um, letter-writing relationship, I guess is what I want to call it. And so the woman who had life without parole about maybe a month ago in passing, she said, I just wish I would have taken that plea deal because I would um, Mm -hmm. be almost towards the end of my sentence. And that like, it, it actually gives me chills even to say that because that just, that, that was incredible to me. Like that somebody was offered a plea deal and went to trial, so she exercised her constitutional right to a trial, and then she was punished for going to trial by getting a life sentence. And I was just, like, completely thrown. And so I've known this woman for two years already, and she just said that in passing. So I guess what I'm saying is sometimes you have to know people a while or get to know them in a different way, and when you, if you don't visit your clients, you may not actually, you know, know something that's really important about their case either. Yeah, that's actually kind of incredible that you said you were not encouraged to visit your clients. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, from I mean, doing it was this- just too, it was too expensive, you know, yeah. I mean, and because it's considered a straight appeal, you know, that's you're looking for stuff that's on the record. You're not looking for stuff that's off the record. So I think um, appellate practice has really changed a lot since the time that I've left. What years were you an attorney? Um I, well, I'm still kind of an attorney, but not really. But um, I practiced from 86 to 2004. But I think everybody's thinking about the criminal legal system has changed a lot in the last, I want to say maybe 10 years, but maybe even in the last couple of years. Like there's a lot of interest in the criminal system and um, people are way more focused on the length of sentences and what happened at trial and juveniles and you know, just so many different things. So there's, I think there's a lot more opportunities for people even who are doing appeals to, um, you know, look at their clients in a more holistic way. So I want to talk about Lamont Branch. This is a man who is now listed on the National Registry of Exonerations and you were his attorney. Were you his attorney for all of his appeals process or a part of it? And tell me a little bit about you know, your, your time with Lamont? Wow. That's so long ago. I'm going to have to try to remember. Um, <laughs> so no, I was not, um, I was not Lamont's original appeals attorney, but his, his case was in my office and there was another attorney who I think it was just driving them crazy. I was, I guess I was kind of known as the person who really liked to blow open the cases. And so he came and asked me, would I take it? And I was like, sure, I'll take it. It was really kind of a fascinating story. So Lamont was um, convicted of killing a childhood friend of his. And the sort of the word was is that he hadn't killed him, but that his brother had killed him. 
and so that he was doing time for his brother's crime. That was basically the, um, the posture of the case, I guess is what you want to call it. And it was, it was like, it's fun when I think back on it. I did a lot of reinvestigation, going back out to the neighborhood, talking to people, talking to witnesses. Ultimately, it's funny, I didn't know he was actually on that registry because he actually was not exonerated. I won that case in the sense that um, we had a hearing and then he was offered a plea to time served. And I think he had served about 11 years at that time. And so he took the plea deal. So he was actually not exonerated. He just pled to a lesser crime and he got out of prison. Yeah, I'm on the registry. I think it says 2002, it was vacated. Mm -hmm. But then he had Mm -hmm. to plea to a lesser. I can't remember. He probably pled. I don't even remember, honestly, whether he ended up pleading to a robbery or to a manslaughter. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, but that's what happens with these cases. And when people don't take the pleas, you know, then they can end up lingering in prison for decades afterwards. And Lamont did not want to take that plea. He did not want to take it. And I was like, Lamont, I don't think we're going to win this case outright. And if you don't take this plea, you're going to spend another 20 or more years in prison. Like, don't do that. So like, there's a lot that goes on behind the the scenes. And I had a, a very late client named Patsy Kelly Jarrett, who had been off for, I came in at year 25 for her. So she had served 25 years in prison when I met her. And she had, um, she was 100% innocent. And at about year 10, she ended up with a habeas and she won her habeas in federal district court and was offered a plea to time served and she wouldn't take it. And then it went up to the appellate court, the second circuit, and she lost. And she ended up serving another 17 years in prison. Well, so for listeners to understand, I mean, what would the plea involve? Um, You know, why wouldn't she want to take that? Because she would have had to say that she had done something that she didn't do. Right. And then, you know, you're not going to get any money for being wrongly convicted. But it's either that or spend another 20 years in prison. So... And looking on the registry of exonerations, Lamont's case is interesting because it says that his brother actually wound up never being prosecuted. No, well, he couldn't really be. I mean, imagine being the defense attorney for his brother, Lorenzo, right? Because they had already had all these witnesses come in and testify that it was Lamont. And then Lamont was convicted. And so now you, um, you know, Lamont is basically exonerated and you turn around and try to bring in those same witnesses to now say that, oh, actually it was Lorenzo. I mean, they would have been, they would have been just destroyed by, by any decent attorney. Do you know, I mean, this is a really fascinating case. I mean, do you know what the family relationship is like now? Um, When I met them, the family relationship was pretty fraught. But by the time um, Lamont got out of prison, it, it seemed like everything had kind of been repaired. And I think I checked in with Lamont about um, maybe a year or two years later. I called him and I asked him. I was just like, are you glad you took that plea deal? And he said, are you kidding me? Of course I'm glad. Here I am out here. Wow. So, But that was a long time ago. I have, I have no idea where he is, but I assume he's just fine. Wow. And and there's another client, actually, this was from the same article I was reading in the Times <laughs> that wound up not being so fine after after he got out. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Timothy Crosby, right? Yeah. yeah that and one. that one weighed really heavy on you. 
that did weigh heavy on me. Timothy Crosby was innocent, and he was caught up in somebody's very big lies. And I had won his case. I was very excited to win his case. And that was one of my first, that was my first wrongful conviction for not uh, a woman who had killed her abuser. Timothy Crosby was, um, I forget, I think he had served about 10 years. And the crime he was convicted of was kidnap. And um, he came home and he, actually one of my friends gave him a job and he worked for my friend for almost a year. And then my friend called me and told me that that he didn't think he was doing that well and he wasn't going to be able to, um, he was going to have to fire him. And so I called, I called Timothy and asked him what was going on and he told me everything was fine. So that was kind of that. But then he was arrested a couple months later and um, it was, I think it was, it was a rape case and it was a home break-in and a rape. And it just, I, I have to say, it was kind of a crisis of faith for me. And I think it was, I kind of say that was the beginning of the end for me and that, and that work that I was doing. So wow. that's why I'm saying, like, I feel a little bit more, like most people would just go on from that. And I know people who've, who've gotten people out and, you know, committed arson and several people died. And, or I, I know people, I know a lot of attorneys in my position who have had a similar thing happen to them and they were totally fine with it. But, you know, I just... It just didn't, I don't know. I, I wanted to do something else, I guess. It was just too hard. Well, it is interesting. And it's something I almost didn't even want to bring up because it makes people feel yeah. like, see, he got out of prison and now he's committing more crimes. And it's yeah, like- well, That's really unusual. Yeah. It's really, really unusual. And, you know, I mean, I didn't know him that well and I don't know what his life was like before, but clearly something happened to him in prison. And- um you know, but it is very unusual. Most people who have served a lengthy sentence, the recidivism rate is like below 1%. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do through my photography, really, is sort of highlight these lengthy, lengthy sentences that people are serving. And maybe I should clear up for your listeners, I'm not really sure, but a life sentence doesn't necessarily mean life. You know, like, in, like that's why I was talking about the woman who had life without parole. That means life and you're never getting out. But if you have a sentence of 25 years to life, it means you serve 25 years and then you're eligible for parole. And, and in a place like New York, um, for a long time, people were never released on parole because of the crime that they had done 25 years earlier. So they could end up being denied parole Basically, every two years, they would go to a parole board and they would be denied repeatedly. So that was kind of when I started doing photography, that was why my emphasis was on life sentences. And, um, you know, I just wanted people to think about it. It was also I started doing photography around the same time that um, President Obama was starting to talk about the nonviolent felony offenders and was setting up and letting them be released. And I was like, this is going to be really bad for anybody who has a life sentence because now they're making a distinction between the nonviolent and the violent. And mm -hmm. in reality, it's not a good distinction because a lot of times it's just like what you were convicted of or what you were caught for. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like drug, drug crimes are classified as nonviolent, but actually drug crimes lead to a lot of violence. So it just ma it's a matter of what you were convicted of. So that's, I was very, very conscientious about 
um, only photographing women with life sentences. And then I did women because I, people don't really think about women in the criminal justice system. Right. And I do, I want to get to your photography, of course, in a minute, but you made me think of something that I wanted to point out is that parole is also, it's different state by state and it's different crime by crime. Every parole board is different. And it just makes me think of um, Henry Montgomery was a juvenile lifer, is a juvenile lifer in Alabama, and he's now aging. He's incredibly old and they will not grant him parole, even though he's up for parole every single year. He's been a quote model prisoner because his offense when he was a juvenile was killing a police officer. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And it's just, that's crazy. That, and that's, you know, And yes, it's different in every state. Like I never really realized until I listened to that podcast, Ear Hustle, but in California, Mm. a person could be granted parole, but then it's up to the governor to either approve it or not. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a very political process. It's very political. And and I learned a lot about parole boards, how um, people on parole boards, they could really be, I mean, it also varies state by state. I was specifically looking in Pennsylvania. Um, They could be really anybody. That the governor wants to be on the right. board. So right. a lot of it is political favors. Oh, it's very, it's the same thing in New York state, which is where you're located, right? Yep. It's yep. very, it's very political here. It's, you know, and there's not really many qualifications to have that job. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it really, it doesn't. And that was really jarring to me when I found that out. So parole reform is a whole other issue that yeah. if listeners want yeah. to get into. I think that's a really important thing to get into. So you had this really troubling incident um, mm-hmm. where a man that you you helped get out for a wrongful conviction then wound up committing a horrible crime. And so you switched your focus um, to photography. Well, it didn't, qu- it didn't quite go like that. I actually said I was done with criminal law forever. And so I actually wrote a book called The Case Against Homework. And it was oh, wow. about how kids do too much homework. And I had a, another career as an anti-homework advocate. <laughs> So that kind of fell in between, but I always, I always, for some, whatever reason, had some pro bono case going. Okay. So first I had, I picked up Patsy Kelly Jarrett and I got her out on, um, I got her paroled. And then I picked up Judith Clark as a clemency case. And that's, um, that's actually how I got into photography. Yeah. So she was a woman who was convicted in 1981 of being part of a, pretty famous case in New York state called the Brinks robbery and, um, where two police officers and, a um, a security guard were killed as part of, um, she was kind of part of a political group. And so when I met her, she had been in prison for, I don't know, like 25 years, something like that. And somebody, a bunch of people actually came to me and said, hey, would you want to see if you can do clemency for Judy? And I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. That's going to be like too hard. And I don't want to be, I don't want to take that on. Like clemency is just, can be a very um, time-consuming, all-consuming process. And I think the reason they came to me is because I had gotten clemency for this woman named Linda White from from Governor Pataki in the early 2000s. And she was a battered woman who had killed her abuser. So anyway, so I started working on clemency for Judy. And um, well, what made you agree to take it if you had some hesitations? Well, I I really thought that she was surrounded by enough other people who could do it for her. And so I just didn't really want to 
take it on. And I was still really heavy into my anti, anti-homework advocacy. But about six months later, it became clear that Governor Patterson was leaving office. And so it was like a time, it was a moment in time. And so I called somebody and I said, hey, did anybody pick up Judy's case? And they said, no. And I said, you know, now is the time. I guess I'll do it. So that's, I just sort of fell into it, I guess. And uh, we thought Governor Patterson was going to give it to her, but he didn't. And then it took almost another 10 years until Governor Cuomo gave it to her. Wow. So when did you start the photography project? It's called Spirit on the Inside. That was your right. first one. Yep. Yeah, that was the first one. But before that, when I was working for Gov- on Governor Patterson, um, you know, he was ostensibly blind. He was pretty blind. And so I actually did an audio for him and I got a couple of really famous actors to read from Letters of Support for Judy oh, wow. and sent that to to him. And so that's like a really kind of very different and kind of creative advocacy. And um, and it was great. And I know that the governor listened to it. And it was a very, the actors I had were Kevin Klein and Glenn Close and Steve Buscemi. So, you know, it was I, w- I guess I was thinking in a w- really, really different way. So the photography, I used to give talks about Judy. And one time I was giving a talk at this synagogue on the Upper West Side, and there were probably 150 people there. And we opened it up to the audience, and some woman came running up, and she was like, if it weren't for Judy, I would, wouldn't have a relationship with my kid. And then another woman came running up. And you would think I had staged it, but I hadn't. I didn't even know those women. And so it was really powerful. And I was like, what can I do with this? Like these women's testimonials about Judy were so powerful. I thought if the governor could hear them, that it might make a difference. And so this was just mulling around in my head, honestly, for about nine months. And then one day I just thought, oh, I'm going to take these women's portraits and put together what they said and... um, see how that goes. And so I did. And I was not a photographer. My husband's a photographer. And um, I had taken photos in my teens and my 20s, but I hadn't really picked up a camera in a really, really long time. And so I just told somebody I knew, can you bring some people over to my house who know Judy really well, and I'm going to take their portraits. And I did. And so there's 15 portraits of women who were incarcerated with Judy, and I have their photos. And then I have their testimonials about what they had to say about Judy. And I put it together in a book called Spirit on the Inside, and I sent it to as many people as I could think of. And the governor had just formed a reentry commission, and so I sent it to everybody on the reentry commission. I sent it to the governor. I sent it to state legislators. Um, I told people to buy them and send them to whoever they could think of. And I know there's more than 2,000 copies out in the world. And so, and Judy's picture is only in there, and there's a little Polaroid of me and Judy in the back. So it was, um, I don't know, it was like a brainstorm. But the thing was, is that it was the reaction to that book that set me down this photography path. Because what was when, the reaction? Well, yeah. I would show it to people and they would like, oh, she was in prison? What was she in prison for? She looks so pretty. Or she looks, oh, she's a grandmother. Like, I think I didn't realize how much the general public really just didn't think about people in prison and what they looked like and who they were and how, I always say how ordinary they are in the best sense of the word ordinary. You know, we usually see mugshots. That's what we see. 
we see mugshots or when somebody has just committed a big crime and, you know, you see them, you know, in handcuffs or something, but we just don't see, you know, regular people. And so unless you have a loved one in prison, you don't really think about it. So that's, um, that's kind of what happened. And then I, my first project after that was called Life After Life in Prison. And I photographed four women through their reentry process. And I just followed them around kind of like a fly in the wall as they were trying to, you know, navigate society after being away for a really long time. And, in, and I put together a book for that. And it just, I guess it just hit a nerve. And so, you know, for a brand new photographer, I got a lot of, you know, a lot of attention to that work. And then I just kept on going. And so now I've had, I did a second project called The Bedroom Project, where I photographed women in their bedrooms. And then my third one, and the one that's honestly is the, the one that I think I always wanted to do, where I photographed women inside prison. And um, my photography for the last two projects has always been accompanied by the women's handwriting. And so they're talking about, you know, their experiences or something like that. You first came to my attention two years ago when I started working on my other podcast, which is coming out in February on PRX about juvenile lifers. We were searching and we were wondering, you know, what kind of work had been done on women serving life sentences. And of course, that's how you popped up. And so I do want to ask you, you know, why women, why are you focused, so focused on women behind bars? I think it's for a number of reasons. I mean, one, people don't think about women in prison. There's hardly any money for women in prison. There's no money in reentry for women in prison. So they're just sort of like that part of the system that nobody's even really thinking about. But then honestly, like it's easier for me. My comfort level is um, it's just more comfortable for me to go into the women's homes and their neighborhoods and their families. And um, so I think it's partially comfort level. Um, I had I had a big connection to women in prison because I, um, well, because through working on Judy's case, I met a lot of women. But before that, my clemency client, Linda White, I mean, I've known her for 30, 30 years now. And we I, we probably talk on the phone once a month. So, you know, I, I just knew her really well. Same Patsy Kelly Jarrett. She's been in my life for like 15 years already. So it, it was just a very easy place for me to, to focus my work. And something I do want to bring up is, you know, you mentioned people don't really think about women in prison. And I, and I do think that that might have a lot to do with people thinking, you know, oh, well, there's just less women in prison. If we can just focus on, you know, the majority being men, maybe we can make a difference there. But I want to read this stat that is from the sentencing projects that between 1980 and 2019, mm -hmm. the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%. Right. Um. And a lot of these women that you encounter, I mean, what, what are these offenses that they are in for? Well, because I do women with life sentences, they're all in for homicide. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you know, there's usually a backstory. I mean, I think there's a backstory for everybody who's in prison and I'm really interested in people's backstories, but for women in prison in particular, the backstory is always one of abuse and trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, the percentage of women in prison who have been suffered from sexual abuse is something like 
somewhere around 80 something percent. So, and a lot of women's crimes are, they're a little peripheral to, um, they're, you know, they're along with a male partner or something like that. So, um, I think what you see, the kind of crimes you see is, are different. And the way, I don't know, I mean, no, but people always think that women get longer sentences than men. I don't know if that's true or not, because I don't think there's the data yet to support that, but it might come out to be true if anybody ever studies it. But um, yeah, that's interesting too. What I was reading is that there's not even a, a lot of research on no. women in prison. No, there isn't. I mean, and even though the the numbers have increased dramatically, it's the the percentage of women to men in the prison population is still very small. But it's I think the whole prison population has increased so much. Yeah, but it's um, you know, and the way their lives in prison are different too. People don't really think about that, but um, when men go to prison, they usually have a woman outside who is still sustaining them in some way or another, whether it's a mother, a girlfriend, or a sister, or an aunt, or something. But when women go to prison, families tend to fall apart. And so you'll meet a lot of women in prison who really don't have any, and they don't have anybody on the outside anymore. It's just very, very different. And if if you go to visit a, a men's prison on a weekend, it's packed. And if you go to a women's prison... It's it's not. I mean, it's just really different. Yeah. And I know Nikki's episode is she's kind of an outlier because she kind of started off not really having much family. And then of course her her one family member is the one who's murdered. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, talking with Nikki and becoming close with Nikki, like it's I've seen a lot of what you're talking about. And she'll tell me about these women that she's with on the inside. Um and it, it's it's certainly different than what I hear from, from a lot of the men. Um, and you know, it's interesting too, because a lot of the men I speak with, they have these advocates who are often women. Mm-hmm. I'd say 99.9% of the time are women that they wind up having relationships with. And then they have a partner and a wife now behind right, bars. Exactly. And, exactly. and, and there's doesn't have that. No. And Rosa, who I speak with, doesn't mm. have that. No, I mean, there's, there's a lot of women who have married men behind bars, but you don't, I mean, you'll hear of it on occasion, but it's really, really rare. Yeah. It's just very different. I mean, that's, I mean, women are nurturers and women are still the people who hold their families together in general. Like this is, this is where we are in, in 2020, right? So what are some of the re-entry issues you've looked at? Because that's something I was talking recently with Marty Tankleff, who you might know, he's an ex- a New York exoneree. Yeah, I know Marty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, him and I were talking a lot about, you know, re-entry issues and how a lot of people think, okay, well, the, the clemency has happened or the exoneration has happened. It's all set. And it's, no, it's not all set, but, mm-hmm. but two, it's certainly different for women. Um, so what are some of the issues that you have seen, you know, meeting these women and, and doing the bedroom project? I mean, everything for, com- for coming home, you know, like the women I know they're coming home after 25, 30, 35 years in prison. So maybe like, I know one woman who came home and, um, is living with her mom But that's really unusual. So there's only like a couple of places, like in New York, for instance, but it must be the same elsewhere with not very many beds. So people end up in the shelter system, which is um, 
you know, one of the women I photographed, she ended up in the shelter system and she said, she, she wrote very eloquently about it. I don't have it in front of me or I would read it, but she said something about coming from prison was like a lateral move Mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, the bedding and the food and everything. But in terms of her freedom, like there was no, it was like night and day, you know? So, um, I mean, there's so many issues. Like when you're coming home after that amount of time, the whole world has changed around you. So you haven't learned any technology. And I think different states are different. And even within the states, some of the prisons are different. But the women I know, they have zero technological skills. They don't know, they don't know how to use the internet. If They don't know how to use a computer. Um, you know, they don't know how to get on the subway because they don't know how to buy a Metro card. You know, it's like the phone, like all of the things that we take for granted, every single thing is like a learning experience. And so when you think about the amount of resilience and creativity you have to have to navigate this world, it's, it's mind boggling. Like it's amazing. It's really amazing. Um, finding work is really, really difficult. So most people kind of end up, at least these days, there's a lot of reentry programs or there's more than there ever were before. And so there's a whole, um, almost, I almost say, I want to say there's a whole business of reentry. And a lot of people end up doing training programs through one of, um, the reentry, um, projects, or they end up working for them. But to, to branch out into the bigger world is very difficult. It is. People who see your art, and I do want to say anyone in New York should absolutely go to MoMA PS1 to see art in the time of mass incarceration. I mean, it's... it's an inc- That's an incredible it's show, incredible. isn't it? It's incredible. So, it's so powerful. I was just, when I walked in and saw it, I was like, wow. Well, the majority just, of the art yeah. in it is is actually done by folks who are incarcerated. Yeah, Um mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, that in itself is just amazing to see the resources that they, that they come up with from prison. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. The resilience. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have so much to learn from people in prison. That's like, it's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, I think all of us in this time period we're living in right now, we're all grappling with like staying in our homes and, and those kinds of things. And then you have to think about people who have spent lifetimes in like a very small cell where everything is regulated and you wonder how they do it. And I have to tell you, the women in, inside who I correspond with have been so sympathetic yeah. to, to me on the outside. And they're always like, oh, we're used to it. So it's easy for us, but it must be so hard for you. And I just feel like, wow, how can they even say that? But, you know, they, you know, uh, those who do it really well, like they, they're so self-disciplined. That's what I have to say. And I think that's what you see in the MoMA PS1 show is the amount of self-discipline that the artists have to be creating in these conditions that are so incredibly difficult and they don't know what's going to be confiscated and they don't know if they're, they're ever going to, you know, if it's ever going to get out of the prison and people are going to see it and whether they're going to be punished for having, you know, some supply that they're not supposed to have. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. Yeah. And the work itself is so incredible. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it was it was truly amazing. amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. I feel so lucky to be part yeah. of that exhibition. I feel really, really happy. Yeah. I, it there. was so nice to see yours too. I mean, like I said, I, I knew your work because I had looked at it when we were talking about, you know, who's covering women behind bars and women with life sentences. And to see your art there, I was like, wow, I really, I really need to get in touch with her. She's doing yeah. some amazing things. Um, and so with that, I mean, when people look at your art, what do you want them to take away from it? I think they want to, I want people to think about the humanity of people who we lock up. And I want people to really think about how, as a society, can we do that to human beings? I mean, that's, that's really, it's, it just, I don't know what the word is, is whether it's mind boggling or how painful it is, but the way we treat human beings is so terrible. I mean, really like the living spaces and the food and the lack of warmth and empathy and, you know, all of the rules are not allowed to ever hug or touch or it's just incredible. And I want people to look at these women who I photographed and I want them to feel for them. I want them to see like who they are and what they have to say. And I think what they have to say is incredibly powerful because a lot of times they are acknowledging that they have, you know, done some incredible harm. And yet that doesn't make them less than human. And they still have the same hopes and desires. And they're, they, in some ways, they live their lives trying to, you know, repair something that you can't actually repair, you know, and that's kind of what they're saying. I can't, I can't bring back the life that I took, but I can live my life in a way that sort of honors, you know, that life that I took. And I think if you start to think about that, that's a very, you know, that's a very um, deep sentiment, right? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, everything you're doing is amazing. And that's what I, I try to do too with the podcast is just humanize people. I, you mentioned mugshots. I hate posting mugshots. Um, mm -hmm. You know, any photos of, of just, you know, these folks as people is what I want. And um, so thank you for all of your work. And I really look forward to seeing what you're doing next. Do you have any upcoming projects? Um, not that I'm talking about, let's put it that way. <laughs> I guess I've, I've been spending the last several months like really uh, grappling. I have to say grappling is what I'm trying to, is what I'm doing because what I was doing was completely put on hold, you know, because I'm not an outdoor photographer. So I'm going into people's homes and stuff like that. Like I haven't done any of that kind of photography for the last nine months. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me and coming on the show. This has been really incredible. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It was really fun to talk to you. You can find the link to Sarah's website, which features all of her books, photography, current and upcoming exhibits, and more on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. 
For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com.